0: The Wiser Podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the WITS Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hi, I'm Cesar M. Walsh, postdoctoral fellow at Wiser, and welcome to the Wiser Podcast. How far has democratic South Africa departed from its apartheid predecessor? And to what extent does South Africa's much-vaunted democratic constitution supersede patterns of apartheid injustice and oppression? In recent years, these questions have surged to the forefront of South Africa's political debate with a new velocity. In this podcast, part two of a two-part series, I expand on my conversation with Professor Tsepo Maglingozi from part one by asking What alternatives exist to the current conception of justice contained in the South African constitution? What futures of the South African constitution might present themselves if we think beyond the current version of the constitutional text? In his acclaimed judicial biography, The Strange Alchemy of Life and Law, published in 2009, Former Justice of the Constitutional Court, L.B. Sachs, gives perhaps the definitive statement of constitutional triumphalism. We should, according to Sachs, glory in the Constitution because, quote, the history of the 20th century in South Africa is, in a sense, the history of the tension between Constitution and revolution and how, in the end, we got a revolution through the Constitution. Sachs's life and work are idiomatic of what many see as the moral unassailability of the vision enshrined in South Africa's constitution, a vision which is also defended by figures of unimpeachable integrity. People whose own personal biographies, like that of Sachs, of sacrifice and fortitude, seem to imbue the constitution with a transcendental authority." And yet this vision of constitutional redemption is increasingly met with the stark and striking injustices and inequalities of South Africa's present. A set of profound questions about the wisdom of the political settlement in the 1990s, about the betrayals of the ANC government, and about the persistence of myriad inequities and iniquities continue to puncture the delusions of constitutional faultlessness on which constitutional triumphalism rests. In this podcast, I intervene in this debate by suggesting that the time has come for a fundamental rethinking of South Africa's constitution, a rethinking which consolidates the gains made by the constitution, but which also seeks to go beyond its limitations – I suggest that three decades of constitutional experimentation have revealed and exposed flaws in South Africa's constitutional design, which cannot be explained by governmental failure alone. In many ways, constitutional triumphalism has frozen political debates around an outdated consensus. Perhaps the time has come in light of South Africa's disappointing first three decades of democracy, to rethink some of the fundamental assumptions of its constitutional order. Is it not time to rethink what the South African constitution can still be? In order to advance this case, I make three interventions in this podcast. First, I reflect further on the constitution's conception of justice, building on my first conversation in part one of this podcast with Professor Tsepo Maglingozi. And finally, I situate this conversation against a larger conceptual frame of the new apartheid, a concept I've been developing to theorize continuities between South Africa's monstrous past and its disappointing present. The new apartheid explains why the South African constitution must uproot patterns of apartheid explicitly because of apartheid's ability to reinvent itself in new and unsuspecting guises, despite the institution of a democratic order. Before I embark on this argument, I need to clarify and confine its limits. First, I need to distinguish between the Constitution, which is the focus of this podcast, and constitutional jurisprudence, the constitutional court as an institution, and constitutionalism itself. This podcast focuses on the text of the Constitution. It reflects very little on constitutional jurisprudence, on the legitimacy of the constitutional court, an institution which I actually think has been one of the strongest institutions since South Africa's democratic conversion. And I also distinguish between the constitution, the current text in its current form, and constitutionalism itself. I take for granted that constitutionalism and constitutional supremacy is a desirable goal and a desirable form of organizing the South African state. So what I'm really looking at here is the constitution in its current form. I want to take the growing tradition of constitutional skepticism a step further by not only questioning the constitution, but also proposing the areas of the constitution which call out for reformation. And I think that these areas are in fact more numerous than many constitutional triumphalists would be prepared to admit. I should pause here to distinguish my attack on the constitution from a recent revanchist attempt to undermine the credibility of South Africa's judiciary, impugn the integrity of the constitutional court, or indeed to reassert parliamentary democracy in South Africa. In some ways, this podcast comes at an inopportune time because there are various, in my view, conservative attacks on the Constitution with which I do not align myself. Nevertheless, and perhaps because of this, I think the time has come for the opposite critique of the Constitution, one which seeks to acknowledge and concede the Constitution's considerable gains since 1994 but which also has the political imagination to think beyond the current form of the constitution and inaugurate a debate about new constitutional futures. And so this is an attempt to reimagine the constitution, not to destroy it. And this process of reimagining may result in a fundamentally different constitution, but one that is in some ways connected to the old One way of thinking about the argument then is that the current constitution is in some ways an interim document. The danger of failing to engage in this process of political reimagination is indeed that those who would seek to destroy South Africa's constitutional foundations for different reasons may also succeed in their attempts to chart a different future. And so we need to paint new political futures which break free of the boundaries and the borders of the current constitutional triumphalist consensus. Part one, conceptions of justice. In the first episode of this two-part series, I argued, along with Professor Tsepo Mallingozi, that the preamble to South Africa's constitution, which tries to narrate South Africa's past and imagine its future contains a limited conception of justice which haunts the rest of the constitution and indeed has haunted democratic South Africa. This left open the question of what values might replace those currently outlined in the preamble to South Africa's constitution. One useful route to imagining these alternatives is to adopt a comparative perspective. Because many different constitutions from many different contexts espouse a more developed conception of justice than we find in the South African constitution. And so looking at these examples shows us how different contexts have grappled with the question of enshrining justice as a constitutional value. For example, the constitution of India leaves no room for ambiguity. Its preamble declares... We, the people of India, having solemnly resolved to constitute India into a sovereign, socialist, secular, democratic republic and to secure all its citizens, justice, social, economic and political. And it continues. This broader conception of justice infuses other parts of the Indian constitution. In its famous Article 39, India's constitution explicitly prohibits wealth and gender inequalities. The state shall, in particular, direct its policy towards securing a. that the citizens, men and women equally, have the right to an adequate means of livelihood, b. that the ownership and control of the material resources of the community are so distributed as best to subserve the common good, c that the operation of the economic system does not result in the concentration of wealth and means of production to the common detriment. D, that there is equal pay for equal work for both men and women. The Brazilian constitution explicitly enshrines a, quote, free, just and solidary society and further enshrines, quote, the repudiation of terrorism and racism. It also states that, quote, The practice of racism is a non-bailable crime with no limitation subject to the penalty of confinement under the terms of the law. On the African continent, various constitutions are able to narrate colonial history and found constitutions on conceptions of justice. The Tanzanian constitution illustrates this. In its preamble, it states, Whereas we... The people of the United Republic of Tanzania have firmly and solemnly resolved to build in our country a society founded on principles of freedom, justice, fraternity, and concord. While the preamble to the Zimbabwean constitution includes this opening phrase, united in our diversity by our common desire for freedom, justice, and equality, and our heroic resistance to colonialism, racism, and all forms of domination and oppression. So it's not impossible to have a preamble to a constitution, to have a set of values which underpin a constitution, which on the one hand narrate a history which explicitly mentions past injustices, such as apartheid in South Africa, and also found their republics on the ideal of justice. And it then becomes incredibly curious that South Africa a country of such great historical injustice, fails to mention such injustices in its preamble and fails to found its constitution on a positive conception of justice. These examples demonstrate that constitutions can exceed justice's relatively conservative framing in the South African document and I think should give us pause for thought. Why is justice so conspicuously absent from the South African constitution? And does this have something to do with how absent justice is from South African society at large? In this context, the constitution's narrow conception of justice, confined to legal notions and, quote, social justice, locates justice in a depoliticized and de-economized world. The text's failure to frame justice as a fundamental value or to accord it similar status to the triumvirate of dignity, equality, and freedom in the South African constitution, partially explains South Africa's failure to provide justice in the constitutional era. This is illustrated further when we look at other sections of the South African constitution. Here I'd like to give two examples from other parts of the constitution which link the impoverished conception of justice contained in constitutional values, with some of the limitations of the constitution which now play out in South Africa's present. The first example is the so-called equality clause. And this clause is a clause which is often used to buttress claims for affirmative action or for increasing the representation of people oppressed by apartheid in the workplace, in universities, and in other spheres of South African society. But the problem is that this equality clause, which contains the strange and contradictory notion of positive discrimination, frames questions of the re-inclusion of those oppressed by apartheid as a necessary evil to be tolerated in the context of equality and failing to appreciate this imperative in the context of justice thus frames efforts to restore opportunity and create a society in which there is not a chronic overrepresentation of privileged minorities in apologetic terms. Could this important and overriding imperative not have been better framed around a positive conception of reparation and justice? Could we not suggest that racial, gender-based and other forms of reparation should happen not because they are evils to be tolerated which offend the notion of equality, but because it's the just thing to do? Not in the context of positive discrimination, but in the context of reparative and forward-looking justice, because that is just. So here we see the way that framing and the conception of justice actually filters into some of the more important and crucial clauses within the Constitution, within Chapter 2, which have come to dog South African society itself. Another example relates to the controversial property clause. Here again, questions of framing have been overlooked. Land justice is dealt with in the Constitution in a clause which is ostensibly about property rights. And so again, as is the case with the equality clause, property rights are affirmed in positive terms. And offenses to these rights are considered in a set of exceptions later in the clause, which serve to limit the overriding right protected in the property clause. So land justice becomes a question of the constraints placed on property rights rather than reparative justice. And so framing justice as an exception to property rights, once again relegates justice to a constraint on an overriding and more important right. It's also curious that questions of land are not dealt with explicitly in the constitution, but are dealt with in the context of property, an idea which extends far beyond land, such that constraints to property rights, which may relate to such things as commercial property, even corporeal objects, come to be conflated with questions of land. Would it not have been preferable to separate the question of land in a separate clause in the Constitution, one which focuses on the need for land justice, the need for reparation in the context of land, not in the sense in which this reparation offends other potential rights, but in the context that such reparation is an overriding imperative. In sum then, these examples and comparative perspectives guide us in thinking through the current problems of the South African constitution, and also give us insight into what South Africa's constitutional futures could be. Part two, the new apartheid. Constitutional triumphalism, or the view that the constitution represents a revolution, is dangerous because it underestimates the extent to which apartheid has managed to persist in new privatized and unsuspecting guises under democracy's shroud. It creates an end of history narrative which needs to be contested in light of the resemblances between South Africa's old and new orders. Since 1994, apartheid has adapted, resuscitated and even resurged, even if only in fragmentary ways. This is paradoxical because democracy is commonly seen as apartheid's cure. But democracy is not the antithesis of apartheid. Indeed, apartheid can even thrive under democracy's cover. And so my critique of the constitution is part of a larger project which seeks to reassert the centrality of apartheid in democratic South African life to disrupt the binary idea that 1994, and indeed the constitution of 1996, represent a decisive rupture. And I think it's increasingly becoming evident that South Africa needs, after three decades of constitutional experimentation, to confront apartheid's imminence and its eminence in South Africa's present. What the poet Lebu Mashile calls the existential crisis of a miracle overstretched I think we can increasingly trace the persistence and the survivability of apartheid along a number of dimensions. The first is that apartheid seems in the democratic era to have become marketized. By this, I mean that where there were once racially exclusive codified laws, statutes, judicial precedents, these seem increasingly to have been subjected to liberalisation and market discipline such that they have now been replaced with price rather than prose. In other words, where there were once discriminatory racial laws, there now seem to be discriminatory financial barriers. And the genius of this process of marketization is that the exchange of racial laws for financial barriers actually benefits apartheid interests. The policing of racial statutes became an increasingly economically costly business towards the late 1980s. But by contrast, the creation of financial barriers carries neither the moral shame nor the financial cost of racially discriminatory laws. And so by replacing legal barriers with financial ones, segregation is transformed from a public burden into a source of private profit. In other words, and in classical neoliberal fashion, apartheid oppression survives, even if in fragments, on a pay-as-you-go basis. And so the de-legislation of apartheid should not be confused with the destruction of apartheid. Because I think it can be plausibly argued that apartheid's privatization has meant that it has developed an internal capacity to adapt around democratic constraints. To be sure, democracy in some ways does constrain apartheid's most rapacious excesses. But this is not to suggest that the system itself has not been able to survive and adapt around these constraints in surprisingly resilient ways. And this, it seems to me, is the fundamental contradiction at the heart of the democratic project, that apartheid, which is constantly framed as a past experience, has in fact become simultaneously endemic and invisible. What has changed in South Africa is that spaces and enclaves of privilege have become increasingly inclusive. And so in a strange way, it might be said that apartheid has deracialized. What this process of the deracialization of privilege has obscured, however, is that exclusion continues to be racialized. And so we have a situation three decades on from 1994 in which people suggest that apartheid has been defeated because enclaves can be more inclusive. However, the deracialization of inclusion has in no way combated the racialization of exclusion. And so spaces of privilege have become increasingly multiracial. But even within these spaces of privilege, a kind of fractalized form of apartheid continues to persist. So that when you zoom into these spaces of privilege, apartheid hierarchies continue to characterize social relations within these deracialized enclaves. As if apartheid has survived at smaller and smaller scales, even as it has become invisible at larger and larger scales. And I think what I'm saying can be illustrated in a number of realms in South Africa. For example, in the realm of wealth, where we've seen the persistence of gross economic inequalities, racialized inequalities that have confounded optimistic predictions. We see this in the configuration of space, both urban and rural, in resilient patterns of apartheid geography and segregation. We see this in the realm of the law of contract and the law of property. We also see it in the realm of carceral punishment, where the persistence of high levels of black incarceration exceeds even that of the apartheid era, And we also see this with the rise of new digital classificatory technologies. The age of the algorithm coincided almost perfectly with South Africa's democratic conversion. And algorithmic oppression has mirrored racial oppression in key ways in the democratic republic, preserving many apartheid patterns. These and other implications of the idea that Apartheid was privatized, I pursue in forthcoming work. The task ahead then is to embrace the constitution as a living document in more than just name, but to actually make it live by the process of adaptation. As economist Minush Shafiq suggests, sometimes the way to solve a problem is to make it bigger rather than smaller. The act of questioning long-held assumptions and disrupting long-standing consensus might open the door for an exciting new constitutional future, one which overcomes and surmounts the challenges which have been exposed after three decades of South Africa's first experimentations with democracy. By making the problem bigger and tugging at the seams of South Africa's constitutional order, we might yet be able to fashion a new consensus, one which centres questions of justice, which squarely confronts apartheid, and in so doing, opens the way to a new and more just republic.